Well, thanks again for joining us for this week's Tech Law 10. I'm Jonathan Armstrong speaking to you from the UK. In the US is my uh, friend and colleague, Eric Sinrod. And Eric, you've been uh, thinking about one of those topics that is very different on our side of the pond from yours, and that's about Jura selection. Yes, I think about juror selection quite a bit, especially when I'm approaching trial, which has happened many times. And, of course, we know, Jonathan, at least here, that you know, jurors are admonished by judges not to conduct any independent factual research with respect to the cases they might be uh, hearing. Um, why is that? Well, it's critically important that the rules of evidence be followed so that jurors only are permitted to evaluate the evidence that the judge deems admissible and relevant. So, for example, if there's a certain uh, category of evidence a jury should consider as ruled by the judge, but then the jury goes off and visits you know, the scene of a crime or starts talking to potential witnesses or does online research, all of a sudden they're considering things potentially far afield and not proper. Okay, fine. Uh, I think that's fairly well settled here in the United States, but and this gets to the sort of jury selection point you asked about, what about lawyers? How much sleuthing can they do to find out about potential and actual jurors, jurors that might sit on their cases? Uh, can they, for example, take a look at the social media sites of potential and actual jurors and find out what they're doing? So, you know, the shoe might be on the other foot. Um, and... You know, we do know that lawyers can do a certain amount of research when it comes to potential jurors. That's how we select jurors. In our country, you know, we have two different kinds of challenges for potential jurors. As we arrive at the final 12 jurors that will arrive in the jury box, there's what are called, you know, uh, challenges for cause. Let's say, for example, Jonathan, uh, a potential juror is best friends with one of the parties in the case uh, or actually, you know, has... Was a, was a witness to the events at issue, or is just hope, hopelessly prejudiced. Let's just say, for example, it's a criminal case, and this particular mm -hmm. juror says, I will always convict, no matter what. That's not a fair juror. They'll get knocked out of uh, the potentiality of sitting on the case as a matter of cause. But then each side has a certain number of what are called peremptory challenges, just where they don't like the feel of this potential juror, and we don't think they're going to be helpful, even though potentially fair, and we just get a certain number that we can knock out, uh, and then ultimately both sides do that, and you arrive at what is considered hopefully to be, you know, sort of middle-of-the-road fair jury for the case. Um, as an example of this process, Jonathan, you know, once upon a time I did work as a prosecutor. And in advance, we were provided with information, you know, very basic stuff in terms of the geographic demographics of the potential jurors, as well as their own potential run-ins with the law, if they had, potentially, if they had been previously uh, arrested or actually convicted. And we sort of had a rule of thumb that potential jurors from uh, the northern part of my county were known as more prosecution-oriented, while the opposite was true of the southern part of our county. So all things being equal, you know, if we had some peremptory challenges, we would like to keep in the, the jurors from the northern part of the county. Also, jurors who had been uh, arrested, potential jurors who had been arrested or convicted before were generally thought of as not friendly for the prosecution. So if we had the option, we would knock them out. Um, 
And so during jury selection, efforts were made to maximize the odds of jurors who might be prosecution inclined, but still fair based on the information we've been provided. And you know, moving ahead here, Jonathan, there's been an entire cottage industry that's developed in our country with, re with respect to jury selection. There are many jury consultants now applying their trade, and at times they even sit at counsel's table in the courtroom helping the, li the lawyers. <laughs> I said liars. Some people, appreciate, <laughs> some people appreciate lawyers being referred to as liars. Uh, I'm going too fast today. The lawyers, they, these jury consultants will help lawyers decide who to try to keep or not keep on the jury based on information ranging from gender, age, occupation, and other types of variables that might be at play in a particular case. I had one very large jury trial uh, several years ago, and our jury consultants actually told us we'd be better served by older jurors. So we strive mm -hmm. to have older jurors in the box. Ironically, we did win that case by a hair, and it was the younger jurors who came through for us uh, after mm. we polled them at the end of the case. Because we are allowed in our country to talk to the jurors once a case is older and get their oh, it's older over and get their impressions. Um, but then, you know, we have a recent question here. You know, do lawyers and their consultants go too far to find out more about jurors by visiting their social media sites? And some, somewhat amazingly, I was actually surprised in some respects, the answer is no. Or put another way, yes, social media sites can be checked out. Um, mm -hmm. Indeed, the American Bar Association, the ABA, has just recently determined that it is ethical for lawyers to look at the publicly available social media pages of prospective and actual jurors. But a significant caveat is that the ABA cautions against lawyers actively friending or following these people, or otherwise gaining access to them via private internet spaces. So we just have to keep this in mind. Lawyers can check out publicly available social media information relating to potential and actual jurors. You know, perhaps this guidance is not all that shocking. Public information is public information, and perhaps should not be precluded from use by lawyers in their jury machinations, uh, just because that information happens to show up uh, on social media sites, some might argue. Others might take the position that even this goes too far uh, and that even though social media pages are publicly available, it's just too invasive. Um, I will say this, though, and one thing that is for sure, the depth and breadth of jury research now will be expon exponentially expanded under this new regime. Uh, this cottage industry relating to jury selection might become more and more outside of the cottage, shall we say, and become big time. Uh, why is that? Because thorough jury research of social media sites really should be, uh, really could become very expensive uh, as these types of searches are very time consuming. And of course, when time is incurred, it leads to increased jury consultant bills. So rounding this out, Jonathan, you know, at the end of the day, and here's, here's probably the fundamental question, will the information yielded from social media pages lead to Betty better jury selection process? And I say not necessarily. It's, it's almost sort of like you know, mutually self-assured destruction when we sort of think of you know, nuclear weapons. Both sides have it, so the playing field's leveled, and hopefully, at least in the nuclear context, they're not used. But here, if both sides are scouring social media pages and actually actively doing it, you think that both sides are then equally enabled to knock out potential jurors they think will not be helpful 
for their side of the case based on what they find. So that was fairly long-winded. I apologize. I got a few of my words wrong. Uh, nice. Hopefully <laughs> it was wrong to refer to lawyers as liars, but, uh, you know, sometimes that happens. Of course, not when it, we're talking about Jonathan Armstrong. So, Jonathan, <laughs> I, I turn it over to you. No, I, I uh, understood it fully, Eric, and I think it was just an indication of how passionate you are about the topic. As I think you know, but maybe the listeners don't, this was also something that I did as a research project at university. So I can't show you it because it's a podcast, but I can hammer on the desk my um, weighty tomb of research back from 1988 on the position on just about the same issues under UK law. And why is that research a sort of bound up uh, piece of history now? Well, that's because we abolished peremptory searches effectively in the UK. So you can still challenge jurors for cause. My sense is that happens much less than peremptory challenges used to. And as a result, I think there's no real industry, from my experience anyway, of researching jurors in the UK. I think in some respects it's regrettable. Um, I, I guess I should declare an interest in that... Um, my new law firm does do um, research on individuals, including social media research, for things like internal investigations. But from a jury context, it seems to me that it's in the interest of justice that people are tried by 12 fair men and true. And the difficulty, I think, of the abolition of peremptory challenges back in the late 80s is that it was it's difficult for some uh, individuals, particularly those from minority backgrounds, to get the fair aspect of the 12 fair men and true. Um, you know, there is a perception uh, as well as age coming into play, as you said so eloquently, that race does as well. Now, the research, and, and, and I did some original uh, research on this with help of the University of Leeds Psychology Department back in the late 80s, there's a theory that some of the U.S. research, and I know, as you said, Eric, there's a, the, there are weighty tombs on that, doesn't stack up in the U.K., particularly with regard to ethnicity. So the perception in the U.K., for example, is that first-generation immigrants are more likely to, uh, to convict a youth of the same ethnicity than less, which is counter, I think, or certainly was counter to some of the research in the U.S. Uh, in the late 80s. So it's a fascinating topic. It seems to me that the ABA decision looks correct, doesn't it? Public information can be taken into account, private can't. But the bigger regret, I suspect, is whether uh, people in Europe get a less fair trial. Of course, some jurisdictions in Europe don't have jurors. Some jurisdictions outside the U.S., I mean, for example, we're all looking at the Oscar Pistorius case at the moment, which has independent assessors sitting with a judge. But I think the fundamental point to me is justice, you know, must not only be done, it must be seen to be done. And I think the ABA decision on those terms seems to me to be correct as a result. Yeah, I think it's correct also, especially given the caveat that, that was provided, as I mentioned. Um, and I'll just sort of close out with one final point, Jonathan. There is sort of there's art and there's science. And we have all of this supposed science relating to how to select the jury. 
you know, looking at the various demographics relating to a potential individual because you really don't know, none of us lawyers on the outside know what's really going on in a potential actual juror's head as we're considering them for the case or while they're on the case. We just don't know. And so we try to, we try to increase our odds of uh, pulling together a jury that's favorable for our side of the case. And, of course, the other side, the lawyers on the opposite side do the same thing. Um, but there's some art to it as well. And I'll just give one example. There was one time I was trying a, a criminal case, and I was, we have what's called voir dire, which allows mm-hmm. the lawyers to ask some questions to the potential jurors to find out if there's bias or to have inclinations one way or the other. And there was this one potential juror, a woman, who by the demographics was all wrong. You know, we did, we did our research, and she was the poster child for just knock her off the jury, do anything possible to knock her off the jury. But for some reason, she was maintaining very good eye contact with me when I was in the courtroom that day. And when it was finally my turn to ask her questions, I was asking her questions, and her questions were coming out fairly fair. And then I looked at her, and I just said, is there any reason why, if you were sitting in my chair, you would be concerned about having you sit on the jury? And she looked at me right in the eye and she said, absolutely not. You should not have a concern. And I had a gut feeling that this woman was going to really listen to the evidence, really follow the law as um, enunciated by the judge. And so I went against all the research and kept her on the jury. And she ended Mm -hmm. up becoming what's called the foreman of the jury. So she was essentially in charge administratively of the jury uh, within their deliberations. And we came out with a pro prosecution conviction and she led the charge yet all the research would have said no but so once in a while we we have to go with our gut feeling and fortunately in that case my gut was correct and frankly i believe the jury really made the right choice and of course we are seeking justice after all so i just wanted to close with that point there's you know there's art as well as science jonathan that's a great point and and i know from my research that the first the first uh documented jury challenge uh, I'm, I'm, we could have this as a quiz question uh, if I hadn't given you the answer, Eric. But the first documented jury challenge in England and Wales was in 1352, believe it or not. So we've had whatever we've had, 700 plus years of research on this topic. But, um, but it's great to see that it's still a relevant topic and we've still reached no hard and fast conclusions in those 700 years. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for contributing. Okay, well, this has been our weekly Tech Law 10, a very good subject, and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again next week. I'm Eric Sinrod at Dwayne Morris, uh, Dwayne Morris LLP. My email is ejsinrod at dwaynemorris.com. Uh, you can scour the social media sites to find out about us. We'd like you to do that, actually. We're not discouraging that. Uh, you can find us on uh, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Jonathan always does a very good job of wrapping things up. Jonathan? Thanks, Eric. Uh, I'm uh, jonathan.armstrong at cordrycompliance.com. Yes, do, as Eric said, if you like to challenge us on this or any other topic, <laughs> then, um, or you judge that we've uh, got something wrong, then do let us know. And um, it's uh, great, as always, to connect with you, and we'll speak to you next week. Bye Cheers. for now. <laughs>